0: Hello, I'm Rupert Soskin. And I'm Michael Bott. Welcome to another Prehistory Guys interview. Introducing you to archaeologists and historians, usually, all too often, hidden behind the scenes. But, in this case, not hidden
1: at all. And, to be honest, not even an archaeologist. <laughs> no, it's very true. Today we are delighted to be talking with Professor Alice Roberts. In our view, one of the finest communicators you'll find in the world of archaeology and prehistory. Before
0: becoming a writer and presenter, Alice's career began as a medical doctor. She went on to become a university lecturer, teaching human anatomy, developing a particular expertise and doing a PhD in paleopathology, the study of disease in ancient human remains. Through a circuitous route, this led her to working as a bone specialist with the renowned archaeology series Time Team, and then on to presenting several of her
1: own landmark television series. She has won numerous awards, perhaps most notably being the first recipient of the Royal Society David Attenborough Award in 2020. Her books are always a joy to read, and her latest title, Ancestors – The Prehistory of Britain in Seven Burials, is so relevant to everything the prehistory guys are about that it seemed the perfect time to get her on to talk about that, along with her thoughts about many other aspects of her work. We hope you enjoy our chat as much as we did. Professor Alice Roberts, thank you so much for uh, for joining us, and and um, welcome, welcome to the show. Uh, do you know, thank we you. always. We always start our interviews with uh, with the same question. Uh, we always ask, uh, what was it that first got you into archaeology? And the thing is, we can't kind help of thinking, this isn't quite such a straightforward question for you. Uh, <laughs> a, so I've got to put it this way. So how did medical doctor, osteologist, biologist, anthropologist, author, presenter, illustrator, Alice Roberts, find herself in the glamorous world of archaeology? <laughs> yeah,
2: it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because um, I'm not an archaeologist. Um, yeah. Uh, as you say i'm i'm a medic originally and um that's kind of what i decided to do when i was a child i think it was about 11 when i made up my mind that i was going to do something with science and people and that it was medicine and i was also fascinated with human anatomy so that's been my kind of enduring fascination all the way through and i I thoroughly expected when I left medical school that I was going on to a qu- career in surgery. That's kind of the the bit of medicine and surgery that had that had really kind of grabbed me. And then I did a six month job at Bristol University teaching anatomy to medical students and had the opportunity to start doing a bit of research. And there was a really interesting research group who were looking at, well, for me, you know, it was my my kind of particular interest looking at archaeological human bones. Mm. I've kind of been exposed to it a bit during my undergrad years because I had a tutor who was a retired surgeon, Richard Newell, who would bring in archaeological human bones to show us arthritis and other diseases in the bones. So I got really fascinated with that then. And uh yeah, so so when I was uh anatomy demonstrating at Bristol University, I'd be I'd be cutting up dead bodies and teaching teaching medical students in the dissection room. And then on days when I wasn't doing that or afternoons when I wasn't doing that, I'd go down to the basement of the old Bristol Royal Infirmary and look at archaeological human remains. There was a massive collection that um Juliet Rogers, who who led the research group, was looking at from Barton on Humber of medieval skeletons and i learned to lay out these skeletons with um louise lowe who's an osteologist who who um, works for oxford um archaeological unit now and um i was just fascinated by how much you could tell from bones yeah. because as a medic i thought well you know surely you can't tell that much you know okay you can, you can spot arthritis but what else can you can you tell from a skeleton because you know they're they're um patients that are long gone you can't ask them about their history you can't you know say when when did this start hurting where does it hurt maybe i'll do some blood tests no there's no blood um so you're very limited but there are some things you can do so um there are obviously techniques that we use clinically that we can also use with with old bones like x-rays ct scans Um, and actually you can tell an awful lot from somebody's skeleton so so that became my area of research and i got sidelined into academia and carried on as as an anatomist in terms of my teaching but as a a biological anthropologist um which is largely focused on osteology Mm. um in my research so that's how it happened really and then um and then the, the the kind of television career uh came came about because of that. So I just, wasn't looking for a career in television. <laughs> I wasn't looking to become an author either. Yeah. Um, but I started writing bone reports for Time Team. Yeah. Uh, they had all these bones that, all these skeletons they dug up that they needed to have reports on. So I was writing reports for them. And then in 2001, so 20 years ago, they invited me along to come along and uh, be a bone expert on, on screen as well and and that was it that was the beginning of my career in television
1: yeah, yeah. amazing
0: did time team itself I mean did the, the interest in archaeology get sparked from being on time team uh, that's kind of that way well, around I, was, I mean you, uh,
2: you just, I'd, I'd been interested before yeah. definitely And I, I, time team is interesting I was I caught up um very recently just a couple of weekends ago yeah. with Phil Harding mm, and um, we were opening a, a a new Bronze Age house at Butzer Ancient Farm, which is so lovely, which is full of... Oh, we must go um, down
0: there. Yeah, uh, yeah, Iron yeah. Age
2: houses, but also Bronze Age houses now yeah. and um, a Roman villa. Um, and we were chatting about it. And, I, you know, and I said to him, it's, it, was, um, it was lovely to work on Time Team because I'd really enjoyed the programme. You know, I'd yeah. been really interested in archaeology. Yeah. And I'd really, you know, I'd kind of watched the programme um, from the start, really. And then ended up working on it myself. How perfect. Which felt really special. How perfect.
0: So, Alice, um, your book, Ancestors, um, latest book, which uh, came out in May this year. My goodness, how time (laughs) flies. Yeah. Now, mm. it's, it's received huge praise from all quarters and, um, you know, if we can add our small voice uh, of <laughs> congratulations to the mix. Mm. I, I, I think it's absolutely beautiful reading, so much more than just a, a review of what we think we know about people in the past. Now, the subtitle of the book is The Prehistory of Britain in Seven Burials. Um, of the seven burials that you talk about, uh, that you write about in the book, which, which for you Uh, was the most profound or rewarding for you to explore do you think?
2: That's a really tricky one because they're all very different stories uh which is you know partly partly why I chose them because they all have different stories to tell. Um, I'm a bit obsessed with The Red Lady of Haviland so I did enjoy writing that particular chapter and and researching that story in more detail. I knew the story quite well but there were so many things I didn't know. And I, I didn't know, for instance, that the, the whole archive of letters between the Reverend William Buckland and Lady Mary Cole on the oh, Gower yes. existed. Yeah. And um, so reading that correspondence between the two of them and also finding out that it was, you know, it was women that first discovered Pavlenka. Yes, that, was cool, that is a, it's the eternal shock isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we remember Buckland's name, but we forget Lady yeah. Mary Cole and mm-hmm. her and her daughters. Um but um, yeah, so Paviland Cave. But I think probably the um, probably the Amesbury Archer actually is the wow. most evocative for me. Yeah. It's just such an astonishing burial. Yeah, you know, this Bronze Age burial, four and a half thousand years ago, and uh, is just a brilliant example of how much we can tell now by by looking at skeletons with with all the new techniques that we we've, we've got at our fingertips. Mm and of course running through the book as well as this story of the engagement between two well they have been very different fields archaeology and genetics yeah. mm. and now the two are coming together and the, you know the the amazing stories that we can now tell based on ancient dna extraction from old bones mm. and and resolving debates that you you just would have no hope of resolving otherwise And then also even you know with the with the Amesbury Archer working out from the chemical composition of his teeth that he he grew up somewhere a very long way away from Salisbury Plain probably somewhere around the Alps so it's just you know it's astonishing to be able to extract all of that biographical information Mm. from a skeleton
1: Mm. yes it's certainly true the discipline discipline is changing enormously isn't it but It seems incredible Incredible. that it's over 10 years since your book and landmark BBC series The Incredible Human Journey uh, came out. Uh, You spent a lot of time with various ethnic groups for that, Um, you know, Mm. sitting on the Mm. ground, sharing time and space with people living ostensibly primitive lives. Did those experiences influence your approach to and indeed interpretations of the past when you were writing ancestors
2: yeah absolutely i mean i that was a, a a really kind of i say a, 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 a formative year yeah. for me i i took a year off from the university um finished my phd which i realized i was never going to write up if i didn't take some time off <laughs> teaching um <laughs> Uh, it was a part-time PhD so it had gone on for the oh, seven years. I didn't realise you were still doing your uh,
0: PhD when oh my goodness yeah
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah no it went on because um, I was you know I didn't I didn't do it full time I did it at the same time as uh, as teaching yeah, and yeah. doing other research as well so it was, a, it was a bit of a bit of a long haul but I got there in the end <laughs> um, so I wrote up my PhD and then um, in the remainder of that year um, year break that I took from the university I, I went off and filmed this uh, this series which was um, a, you know really big budget uh, very kind of well global reach you know we, we travelled all around the world um, kind of series that the BBC just isn't doesn't seem to be making anymore actually um, with those, those really kind of yeah. um, broad ambitions and what we were doing was setting out to tell the story of the ancient colonisation of the world by our species mm. by Homo sapiens and um, looking at the 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 fossil evidence, the, the archaeological evidence, the evidence of uh, of ancient cultures, but also what we had at the time in terms of in terms of genetic insights as well, which, you know, today, even just 10 years later, quite limited, actually. Um, yeah. But we could see broad brushstrokes by um, looking at the sorts of studies that were being carried out on tiny bits of, the, uh, of DNA, like mitochondrial DNA, which is which represents only a very small amount of the DNA in your cells. Mm-hmm. Um, and why chromosome DNA? I mean, now we're reading whole genomes, which is astonishing. Um, but even just reading um, those those small bits of DNA, we could you could, you can map out the expansion of the human species across the world. So we were kind of trying to do that thing of bringing together archaeology and genetics, um, and at the same time, as you say, visiting all sorts of uh, of different indigenous communities around the world, and that was amazing. So the the people I met made a real impact on me that year from um, the the experts that I was meeting and interviewing um, to the the indigenous communities that I had had the joy of spending time with and it is that you know that luxury of mm. spending time and meeting people that you just I, I can't imagine how else I would have I would have met those people yeah. I I I had similar experiences on subsequent series so I I did a series called um, Origins of Us which I always find difficult to say because we all called it Oranges. (laughs) Um, Oranges of Us Um, and uh, so I had similar experiences there and I remember going out to um, spend some time with a group of Hadza people in Tanzania and the wonderful thing about going and doing that as part of a filming project is that we were traveling with Uh, an anthropologist who knew this group extremely well Alyssa crittenden and it was absolutely brilliant because we we kind of turned up to film with this with this small community uh and you know we'd sort of driven for for hours and hours and hours to to get to them and they'd they'd kind of come out a bit to to find us as well and they set up a new camp and we set up a camp next to them and they just you know Alyssa introduced us and um and was we had we had translators as well and Alyssa could elissa could obviously translate too and they just greeted us as friends of friends of a friend mm-hmm. and we were able to have amazing conversations with them and it was all the conversations that went on um outside what we were filming as well so uh, i was filming and talking to them about um the place of children in their society and uh, and uh, and reproduction and kind of divided roles between men and women and diet and all sorts of things like that. Um, but aside from that, you know, we have these conversations about, um, again, again, about families. I mean, they were fascinated by my family. I was fascinated by their families. Um, and just being able to spend time with people who live very, yeah. very different lives, you know, they were equally fascinated by by us um, yeah. as we were with them. They were asking me, I, I, had, a, I had a baby at the time, and um they were asking me questions about where this baby was who was feeding her because she was 11 months old and Alyssa was saying be careful because they think you've told them that your husband's looking after her they think he might be breastfeeding her (laughs) uh because they just they had no idea about bottled milk formula milk or anything like that um and then they were saying is it true that you wrap your babies in rags and leave them to um to urinate and defecate in those rags and I was like, "Yes, yeah, it is." Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and they were saying, "Why don't you just wipe them up as soon as they go?" That's what we do. And I was kind of trying to explain it wasn't quite as warm in um, in England as it was <laughs> yeah. in Tanzania. Um, do you, do you let your babies sleep in a in a different place from you? Do you have your babies sleeping in a different place? Why don't you have them with you? Aren't you scared? Goodness, goodness. If you put them somewhere away from you, all these questions. oh is it true that you is it true that you go to the toilet in your houses? Why do you want to go to the toilet in your houses? It was really interesting. you yeah. kind of go, yeah, okay, all good questions. Yeah. <laughs> but also the, the
0: the curiosity as well. Isn't that yeah. fascinating? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, it was really interesting. I, I mean, that that particular trip for me, I I kind of um, came back from that going, we do, we don't need all the stuff that we think we need, <laughs> particularly around having babies. You know, there's this kind of, I mean, I felt that, I felt like that anyway, yeah. and it just kind of enhanced it for me that um, there was this real, I had this real profound feeling that I was just giving birth to a new consumer, yeah. and that even before I had this baby, yeah. oh, my companies were getting in touch with me. Um, you know, the midwives yeah. were trying to hand me this bounty pack with lots of lots of vouchers and trying to hook me into all these companies because it's you know it's a, they can sell more stuff. There's a new person in the world, and I hated it. Um, and I came back from I came back from the Hadza in particular, just going right, really don't need much stuff. Yeah. And um, certainly with my first child, I didn't even have a pram. I was very much right. This is what you do: you carry your baby round. Wow. Um, and that so I was quite influenced by them in that respect yeah, yeah. Um, that idea that you, you know you just have your baby next to you yeah. that's that's what they did they'd have a they'd have a, um, a kind of fabric sling that they just put the baby in and so that's what I did too we could talk yeah.
0: for Ever about this? Um, we could, <laughs> because I mean, we we give ourselves the remit, you know, through uh, prehistoric archaeology, you know, is trying to get as close to people as possible, not just explain the mm. archaeology and you know have mm. a, a narrative, you know, in, in the technical terms and academic terms to tell, but also as far as we can, getting close to uh, to people and. Uh, yeah, of course. Well, it's always tinged with our own experiences and all the rest of it.
1: But, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that, that really its one of the wonderful things about your books, you know, because you weave together, you take the archaeological evidence and you weave it into a story that, or into a narrative that really does bring the past to life. And that's just so rare, you know. Um, uh, so... You know, making those comparisons between these modern day ostensibly primitive uh, societies and uh, and the past you know just bringing the past life as mike said it's it's about it's all about the people
2: it and is, sometimes it is. we get yeah. obsessed
1: with the bling and the artifacts yeah. but it's about the people yeah.
2: no yeah. i mean i think even when you look at the bling and the artifacts what you're what you're thinking about aren't you is it is who made them? Why did they make them? What did they mean? You know, what did it yeah. what did it mean to yeah. the person who who owned those objects? And it mm. is all about getting in touch with people. You're right, it is, and yeah. it's about um, imagining those past lives. And I think that um, ethnographic studies, so so looking at other communities around the world, primitives a difficult term, isn't it? I mean they're yeah, yeah, they're, really they're living yeah. they're living lives. You know, people people like the Hadza, people like the um, the Bushmen in Namibia are are living lives which are um, much more basic, I suppose. But even that has, brings kind of a value judgment yeah. with it. But <laughs> yeah. it's without the trappings of you know the technological trappings, I suppose, of, uh, of of developed countries in modern society. And I suppose I suppose what what um, ethnography does for us is it doesn't it doesn't show us exactly how people were living in the past. Of course, it can't. And 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 then we uh, and we also shouldn't see those communities as being somehow um, you know preserved in aspic primitive yeah. societies that have just carried yeah. on doing the same thing mm-hmm. but it can certainly open our eyes to um, the types of um, societies that people are living in uh, the organization of those societies and um, what's important to people through time uh, the technologies that they're using um, all of those things so I think it I think it helps us with our hypotheses rather than giving us a a a definitive answer it can't give us a definitive answer Mm. but it is i mean it is amazing i've spent time with um reindeer herders in siberia as well and that's utterly fascinating utterly fascinating to see how um you know their lifestyle means that they can you know survive in i I think it probably is the most inhospitable place on the planet when you get up into the far arctic and it gets down to (laughs) minus seventy in the winter it's it's horrendous challenging yeah yeah and and you kind of go there thinking how are they surviving there with um you know sort of i I suppose the minimal of minimum technological equipment or you know we i mean i remember going to to one particular one particular group and they said we're not going to take you anywhere if you wear your um, your Baffin Explorer boots that you've brought with you. You need to put reindeer fur boots on. And they were right. The reindeer fur boots were so much better than what we brought wow. with us. Right. <laughs> we yeah. spent a lot of money on gear and it wasn't good enough. And it wasn't yeah. as good as the fur.
0: Yeah. One of my favourite things in the uh, Pitt Rivers <laughs> Museum is um, a, a raincoat uh, made out of uh, <laughs> seal intestines. mm Probably works very well indeed. Yeah, but it anyway. smells a bit. Though. <laughs> <laughs> I digress slightly. Anyway, yeah. uh, mm. keeping um, incredible human journey in mind for for ancestors though, you, you did some work with uh, Tom Booth of the Crick Institute. Yeah, um, I'm. Yeah. I'm,
2: um, so I'm involved with this um, a- incredible project running out of the Crick. So the most yeah. ambitious ancient DNA project in Britain to date, so 1,000 ancient genomes. Um, And that is um, Pontus Scoglin's lab, of uh, of which um, Tom Booth is a a researcher. And Pooja Swali as well, he's also amazing. He's doing metagenomics, looking at the the genomes of other things that are not human. So when you sample DNA for all bones, you obviously get the DNA of that individual person, but you also get loads of bacteria, some of which are going to be bacteria from the soil. But some of them are, you know, pathogens that were around in that person's body. Viruses as well. Yeah, so she's yeah. hoping to look at um <gasps> pathogens through time. She's already got some really interesting results actually. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a it's a really exciting big project that will that will lead to some some answers to some of the enduring questions. I mean, I want to know how many Anglo Saxons came over, if yeah. they did, <laughs> you know.
0: Oh um, goodness. Yeah, going there. But, but the, the the real question was then, uh, Alistair, the kind of developments that, uh, you know, that Tom Booth and others like him are producing, I mean, almost on a daily basis now, do, does any of that make you want to go back and revisit some of the past projects you've done in, in the light of that's Well, it's funny you should say that.
2: funny you should say that. Because um, I've been writing the follow-up to Ancestors. Um, So this takes us into the historical period and um, into um, the world of the Romans, the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings. And while I was writing the Anglo-Saxon chapter, I was reading about some uh, quite, quite recent um, revelations about um, the arrival of the Justinianic plague in Britain. So the Justinianic plague sweeps through Europe in the, in the sixth century and we've got very, very good documentary evidence for that. Uh, but we've got no documentary evidence of, of it, in, it in Britain. We've got very patchy, patchy history, I would say, from okay. the 5th and 6th century anyway. Mm. Um, so we're largely relying on archaeology um, for those centuries, those kind of post-Roman centuries. And I was reading about this particular particular cemetery at um, Edict's Hill in Suffolk, I think, where they had um, managed to find some Yersinia pestis DNA uh, in that cemetery. So um, Yersinia pestis is the pathogen that causes the plague. And that cemetery had a number of double and triple burials in it. And I looked at them and I thought, they look very, very similar to a particular cemetery that I've worked on, uh, where there were double and triple burials. And a bit curious because... Um, they were well furnished graves and I think you kind of expect that if somebody's yeah. been laid yeah, yeah. low by the plague they're going to be hurriedly buried um, yeah. and uh, without a lot of grave goods but Edicts Hill had plenty of grave goods buried with people and yet we know that there were people there who were suffering from um, from the plague so we've managed to track down those, those skeletons and um, I think Tom has already sequenced them so we may be able to see if this this other cemetery, which is in Hampshire, uh, is also evidence of the Justinianic plague in Britain. And that cemetery is the very first cemetery that i worked on for Time Team. Wow. Going back to 2001, (laughs) it was my first first, um, Time Team dig.
1: Amazing cycle. Full circle. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to ask you about Tamed tamed 10 species that changed our world uh, it's a remarkable book uh, not least of all because of the, the wealth of diverse detail that you had to research for many of the stories that you've woven together with such clarity you know um uh, but similar to our question about ancestors uh, which of those 10 species do you think has had the greatest impact on the evolution of humanity are you not allowed to say humans for anyone who hasn't uh, read the human, book, yeah. humans are number no yeah. ten in the book. So,
2: <laughs> uh, because we've domesticated ourselves, you see, <laughs> we, yes, ourselves, I we, could, <laughs> we could sneak ourselves in as well. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, this is this is a book that I wanted to write because I'm interested in the way that archaeology and genetics are allowing us to reveal the the deep history of humans, and I thought you must be able to do that for other species. I got a bit obsessed with it. I was writing articles to The Observer as well about the origin of reindeer and blackberries and all these <laughs> just basically anything any species yeah. you like, and you could you could <laughs> use genetics and archaeology together to work out the the origin of these uh, of these species and their stories. but with tamed i I chose ones that had um, had this relationship with humans and had been um, domesticated by humans and uh, are, you know, so much part of our world, so dogs, horses, chickens. Um, and plants as well, so potatoes, wheat, uh, maize. Fascinating story. So, which one do you think had the most impact? <laughs> <day laughs> it's really tricky. It's really yeah. difficult because um, I think it's probably the cereal crops actually, and mm. maybe not the animals so much. But I mean, horses have uh, have caused an amazing transformation, and you, you end up kind of thinking about those these kind of alternative histories about. Mm. you know what what human history would have looked like without domesticated horses and i think the history of warfare would have been completely different because Mm -hmm. very quickly horses are used for raiding and then and then formal cavalry pretty quickly um and of course transport moving you know bulk movement of goods and people that it wasn't really possible before um so I think you could probably make an argument, it depends what your, depends what your criteria are. Um, I think it probably still has to be wheat, actually, because without those cereal crops, those founder crops of the, of yeah. the Neolithic, and if I could be permitted to say wheat and the other cereals, so yeah. in, in the Fertile Crescent that would have included, um, it would have included um, oats and rye. Um, in, in East Asia, it includes um, rice and millet. Um, those founder crops were just essential to the, the beginning uh, of the Neolithic and the expansion, the massive population expansion that we then get um, yeah. in the Neolithic with that, you know, having those staple crops. Yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah, probably it is the cereal crops, but mm-hmm. I would like to make an argument for horses as well. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I found it fascinating, actually, that the way you uh, you described... In that the just the serendipity of it all you know the fact that you know it wouldn't have been people deliberately choosing this that and the other it would have been you know i think the example that you gave of uh, of you know when people would have noticed where they had been bringing in wild uh, grains and that uh, and that stuff just would have started growing where mm. they'd been working just yeah. those those sorts of ideas that uh, that, you know, it's only when somebody kind of presents you with these sorts of uh, alternative views of the past, if you like, that you realise, no, OK, that makes sense. That makes complete sense. No, Rather I'm really glad you people-
2: put yeah because it's i mean we do tend to tell these i think overly heroic stories and i've probably been guilty of this myself um <laughs> but we do, we do love to paint our ancestors in a good light i mean that's a you know you don't speak ill of the dead kind of thing um mm. and also you want your own ancestor to have been heroic um and undoubtedly amongst our ancestors who <laughs> so are we, we deeply um unheroic um but i also think a lot of these advances you know we again we we sort of paint it in um colors where we we, we talk about human ingenuity and, you know, the pioneering spirit and all of those kind of things. And, and I think an awful lot of it is just people going, oh, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. that works. Oh. Didn't expect that, but it works. Let's do that. And yeah. what's interesting, of course, is that actually that's that's how a lot of science today works as well. Mm. that yeah. uh, And we write it up in our scientific papers as though we knew exactly what was going to happen when we did this particular experiment and it went wrong and we had a much more exciting result than we <laughs> that we would anticipated and we write uh, it up as though we knew that was going to happen all along yes. um, and <laughs> yeah it is like that so maybe a bit more humility is needed
0: yeah <laughs> I, actually my next question kind of follows on from that a, a little bit uh, Alice it, it may interest you, you to know that um, we, we share certain views about some of the presumptions that persist in the world of prehistoric archaeology um <laughs> How can I put this? Last chapter of our book, Standing With Stones, uh, accompanied the, the film, was called Temple What Temple?
2: Oh, brilliant, yes. Would you,
0: <laughs> would you like to say a few words about SSSDs?
2: Yes, I would. Yeah. So I, th- I think it's really difficult, isn't it? Again, you know, we like to speak um, well of our ancestors and I, thought there's, I think there's also a tendency for, you know, if, we, if we're associated or we're studying a particular site, Um, we want it to be something special. We want it to be more than just a village, you know, another Mm. village, another settlement. Um, And there is this thing about the R word in archaeology where um, if you can't work out what something is and you can't think of a mundane explanation, then you go (laughs) for a ritual. (laughs) Um,
0: I didn't say what an SSSD was. No, you
2: didn't say what an SSSD (laughs) was. So an SSSD (laughs) is my invention for um, this very particular pitfall for archaeologists which is that if they um get obsessed with their site being um something very 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 special and potentially a you know ritual site um where it could have mundane explanations um then they end up with a a site of special sacred delusion and um there are quite a lot of those around the place um and i think it is it, it is something which we should be teaching our undergraduate archaeologists to really really beware i'm a medic you know i i come i come at archaeology unashamedly saying i'm not archaeologically trained i'm pretty handy with a trowel um my training is medicine and and i so I, I deframe everything in a kind of in a kind of medical way but I, I mean i think that's kind of useful other people might think i'm being naive or i don't know but um in medicine common things are common You know when you're looking for a diagnosis you're you're trying to diagnose somebody you don't go for the most exotic possible (laughs) disease you don't say well you've got a few spots it must be some really exotic tropical disease that you've got you go well maybe you've got chickenpox so i think it's the same you know we should have the same approach in archaeology common things are common um rather than just going well i like the idea of it being something really Mm. special and rare so let's 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 plump for that yeah. Um, but I, you know, I my husband's more more mundane in his explanation. So he is an actual archaeologist, um, and uh, we met at university. So that may have influenced me as well um, over my career um, <laughs> in many ways. Um, but he he always, I mean, he's a, he's a field archaeologist. He's he's quite kind of uh, just grounded in his, in his explanations about things. Um, and I don't know if there's a difference between field archaeologists and I don't want to diss academic archaeologists I know lots of amazing academic archaeologists whose interpretations are just brilliant um, and you know extremely thoughtful maybe in the past let's put them in the past there have been you know academic archaeologists who've who've tended towards these kind of uh, rather overblown interpretations let's say or explanations Um, and there are some things, there are certainly some objects where I've said, well, I can't think of any other explanation other than that they must be ritual, and the one that really springs to mind are the um the so called uh red deer head headdresses from Star Car in Yorkshire, <laughs> yeah, which are Mesolithic, yeah. so they're frontlets they're so the front bit of a of a red deer skull with the antlers attached and um they've got holes pierced in them so the interpretation for decades has been that these are these are headdresses and i kind of racked my brains about it thinking I, d- I don't know what else they are actually i mean it may be that they could be nailed up to something i don't know and that they could be a decoration on a wall but they they do look like ritual objects and you know maybe headdresses is the is the best um, interpretation and i and i said i i told that to my husband and he and he said well, let's have a look at them then and we had a look, at, look at pictures of them and he said they could have been coat hooks <laughs> it's like, oh, dear. they could, <laughs> they could have been Kate Hicks. And when I was, I did, a, I, I was on tour a couple of years ago, and I and I and I did, um, I did a kind of ask the audience um, project, and and went up and down the country showing people pictures of the of the Starcar headdresses, and going, what do you think what? they are? I told them this brilliant story of them being, you know, sort of hu- involved in headdresses for hunting rituals yeah. and you know, all of this yeah, kind yeah. of thing that we've got no idea of because it's Mesolithic and we've just lost in the mists of time. Um, and then told them about my husband and his idea of coat hooks. And then I'd, I'd ascertain um, the kind of level of support for each of those theories from the audience. And what was fascinating was the variation up and down the country. So the further north I, want, I went, the more sensible people were. And they really they really preferred the mundane explanation um, the further south they came, the more mystical people were and they liked the, they liked the more rich, like interesting fascinating. it wasn't just south and north though. Um, it was also yeah. east and west as I got down into the south and I and I reckon, and this is a, <laughs> this is a, a, a hypothesis I need to do some more work on, but I we, I reckon it's proximity to Glastonbury. I reckon Glastonbury is peak mysticism in the UK. The closer you are to Glastonbury, the more likely you are to prefer a mystical answer. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, this is yeah. my theory, and yes,
1: <laughs> yeah, it it does make sense, doesn't it? Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we Lovely. we have uh, we have such a, an issue about uh, so many of these things that uh, I mean the, the biggest one for us is, is henges. I'm not going to bang on, but but you take for example, you you got uh, Devil's quoits in Oxfordshire that uh, the excavation report it's just full of so many cattle bones, uh, and then you go to Copeland uh, Henge. Uh, up north, which is the oldest henge in Britain. Cooplinth Henge has got drove roads running through it and high phosphate levels in the soil analysis, you know, and yet we still regard henges as temples instead of yeah, animals there. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it is the go-to explanation, isn't it? So, yeah, mm, we, we do lovely. like your SSSDs. A, again, we could talk for quite a long time. We could time talk for that. a very long time about that. Anyway, moving on. Um, changing the subject entirely really Um, we've heard you speak about scientists being public servants Mm. Uh, and we've had chats with our good friend uh, Professor Tim Darville uh, about archaeology's duty or or obligation if you like to give back to society and you know he pioneered Human Henge as a way of using prehistoric sites as a means of helping with public mental health for example so in your role as Professor of Public Engagement in Science, do you think archaeology could or should be doing more?
2: Uh, I think it Yeah, I think it could be doing more. But actually, I think that, um, you know, looking across the country and looking across... Um, say so, I mean, thinking about university archaeology for a minute rather than archaeology more broadly, yeah. I think that our university archaeology departments have got some of the best public engagement um, in our universities. Mm-hmm. Um, archaeology seems to have been very kind of open to public engagement from from a very early point in time. I mean, I think it's been really interesting over the course of my career to see public engagement as an idea, and it's such a clunky term, but essentially universities talking with the public and very much in dialogue, having a conversation, not just talking at the public, um, but having a conversation, a two-way flow of information that that idea has gone from being quite a quite a fringe idea i think um even 20 years ago um and the idea of doing any kind of communication outside the university was was certainly when i was in bristol viewed as you know something you did in your spa- in your spare time you know in your in weekends and evenings it wasn't part of core academic work it wasn't seen mm. as part of the core mm. remit of a university um and again i think it's some of it's my naivety coming from my background in medicine that it never occurred to me not to talk about my subject right. outside the <laughs> bounds of the university it just wasn't yeah. even a kind of it wasn't even an option that I wouldn't because I, I think you know my my whole um, training and my, and my career up to that point had been about the public and about mm-hmm. science in public and with the public um, and I think we're in a very very different place now but I think that um, I think that archaeology departments grasp that very very early on um, and I don't think it's, uh, you know, it, it it's not surprising that Time Team itself as a television idea came about because of McAston in in, in Bristol. You know, yeah. it was basically his mm-hmm. idea with Tony Robinson. Tony Robinson spent a summer digging with him in Santorini and they cooked up this idea of an archaeology TV programme that they thought nobody would watch. Um, yeah, yeah. but Mick yeah. you know spent so much of his time engaging with history societies you know local communities in all sorts of different ways and very much saw archaeology as a subject that um was all about the public I mean what is the point in trying to work out the past if you're not then sharing it with everybody it belongs to everybody mm. um yeah. I feel that about university research then much more broadly um you know and as I have said before scientists are public servants you know we mm. are largely paid for by public money um we're working on we're working on different areas of science that will benefit the public in all sorts of in all sorts of different ways but we don't want those benefits to be limited to just the output at the end of a research project you want it to also be about um culture more broadly and and actually the research can be better i think if we engage the public early on in research projects
0: yeah Yeah. Mm. oh well do you know what i mean the (sighs) Time is um, flying along. I'm afraid, (laughs) and gee, I can see. uh, Well, as I said before, we could talk for a long time. But before we finish, I just wanted to just kind of backtrack. Sorry, wanted to backtrack a little um, and uh, ask you, someone who's well aware of the influence of contingency and serendipity and Mm -hmm. the little bifurcations that happen in life, in another universe. There is an Alice Roberts that is a surgeon. Mm. What do you what do you think? What do you think she would think about the Alice Roberts in this universe? The Alice Roberts that's the polymath.
2: <laughs> Goodness me. I mean I do I do think this. I do kind of imagine um, you know, my career's ha- having my career having headed off in different directions. I think yeah. I would have been uh, completely happy and fulfilled um as a pediatric surgeon that's what I wanted to do Mm. um so I was lucky enough to do one of my house jobs um doing um so so surgery um on on infants and infants and children I loved all aspects of that job the the craft of the surgery itself but also the engaging with engaging with children so I would have been very happy I think maybe I would Mm. have carried on watching programs about archaeology and reading books about archaeology and I think I'd view that other me kind of curiously but not necessarily uh, I think I would yeah I think it would have been just as happy it would have been like hmm yeah I could have done that but done this instead but I feel very lucky I feel very lucky to have ended up doing what I'm doing I mean it is it is um, every every day I'm learning new things and I feel as though that's a kind of very privileged position to be in And then Mm I really, really enjoy sharing those stories with a wider audience.
0: Mm -mm. And it's the enthusiasm uh, for them. I mean, there's a, you know, you say you've been lucky... And uh, we make our own luck for, to a certain degree, um, but uh, it's it's the enthusiasm uh, and maintain maintaining that enthusiasm. Well, I mean, the enthusiasm seems to come naturally, and that's what uh, what shines out, and uh, you know, is the basis of uh, it. Is uh, it's in communication?
1: That,
2: yeah. Yes. No, thank um, you. Well, I do, I mean, I genuinely enjoy what I do. What I do. So. There you go. It yeah.
1: shows, you go. Alice. You, you're going back on tour shortly.
2: In fact, it's next week, isn't it? Um, uh, it, it is. It is first of November. I think is the first day. So, uh,
1: yeah. uh, so, what are you talking about? And, uh, and where can people come to see you? Unless it's sold out already, is your whole tour sold
2: out? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't checked on tickets. Actually, it was selling really fast. So, um, but I'm sure there are some tickets left. It's a little. It's a little bespoke tour because it's the first time I've been on tour for a couple of years um, because of events of the past couple of years. Indeed. I'm really looking forward to getting out back in front of live audiences again. I love talking to people um and i'll be talking about ancestors but i'll also be talking about some um behind the scenes stories as well from various filming exploits and also potentially spilling some of the beans on the brand new series of digging for britain which will be on our screens either late at the end of this year or just into 2022 some amazing new archaeology um so i'm i'm in um bristol uh exeter cardiff oxford Uh, I think that's it. There might be a couple more, but check out the website.
1: Fantastic. Fantastic. Well,
0: this has come to an end uh, uh, much too soon. However... It's been an absolute joy talking to you, and I hope it's not mm. been too much of an ordeal for you. It's uh, been
2: really fascinating. Thank you very much for thank you very much for the conversation. I've really enjoyed talking to you too. I'm going to go thank and watch you. all your back catalogue
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with that. Anyway. <laughs> But um, no, thank you, Alice. And, and thank you uh, guys for watching out there. I do hope you enjoyed that. And if you did, please do consider supporting us through our Patreon page and liking and uh, and subscribing and all that stuff. So that's it, I'm afraid. It's goodbye from me and it's um, goodbye from him. Yeah, it's a goodbye from me. Yes, goodbye from me goodby- too. Goodbye from <laughs> Alice. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so much, you. Alice. Cheers. Thank Bye-bye. You.
2: Bye-bye.